0: encountering Jesus. We've seen different stories of different people who encountered Jesus uh, and were impacted as a result of it. It could be Satan's encounter with Jesus in the wilderness. It could be Zacchaeus. We've studied the woman at the well. We've done the, the, the Pharisee Simon and the prostitute. We've done the Mount of Transfiguration. But today, the encounter I want to talk to you about is Your encounter. When we read the Bible and we see these stories of these amazing men and women of God and how they encounter Christ and their lives are changed and transformed, the Lord desires to do the very same work in you. And so today, I want to talk to you about your encounter with Christ. Why? As human beings, we're always becoming. We're becoming more of whatever we worship. We're becoming more of whatever we regularly seek in our lives. We're becoming more like whatever we choose to spend our time on. And that's good when it's good. And that is bad when it's bad. And so as we dissect Romans chapter six, I wanna propose to you a question that I want Romans six to answer my main question for you here today is this. When you encounter God, how does it change you? When you encounter God, how does it change you? Because at the end of the day, how you answer that question will determine if you even value seeking the Lord. How you answer that question will determine if you even treasure the Lord. Is he worthy to spend time with? Is he worth the time to encounter in an already busy schedule? How you answer this one question will determine if you even value spending time before him. I want this question to be answered through Romans chapter 6. I want to examine your encounter with Christ. But before we look to the text, will you pray with me, church? So God, we're pausing here today. And Lord, Romans 6 is going to have beautiful words to say to us. And equally, it's going to have some challenging words to say to us. But we know that that for those who are in you, there is no condemnation. Therefore, Romans 6 is an invitation to something more. So Holy Spirit, I ask when we read these words about what Christ has done, when we read these words about how we're called to live, would we do it under the umbrella of the blood of Jesus Christ that's already been given to us, the spirit that has already been put inside of us, and would we look to this invitation in Romans chapter 6, and we, we, we find deep words of life, I pray, in the name and the blood of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, you've already heard Romans 6 read over you, but I, I want to preface it with something that's really important. In the first five chapters of Romans, again, we're in six, so let's take one step back. Romans 1 through 5, Paul is banging the drum of a theology called justification. Now, if you're wondering what justification is, it has to do with our right standing before God, that we are declared righteous before God because we have been given the righteousness of Jesus Christ in our lives. And so Paul in the first five chapters is like, remember what's done, remember what's declared, remember what's done, remember what's declared. And it's only in chapter six now he starts Off of justification, he starts to talk about sanctification. And you're like, Matt, I feel like theology is like a medical community. Why do they use unnecessarily long words? I don't know. All I know is a lot of theologians are kind of a little bit boring, so they probably have a lot of alone time, and so they just have longer amounts of time to create words. In sanctification, it's about you becoming more like Christ in your life. Once that you're declared in a right standing before God because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, Now and only now can we talk about what it's like to become Christ-like greater and greater in our lives. If you want to know sanctification, it's God greater producing the righteousness in us as we live out our new life in Jesus Christ. So understand, the first five chapters are about being declared righteous. Now Paul starts to go, and here's how you live under the new declaration, which is why this is important, because right off of the bat, Paul starts in verse 1 with, with, a, with a strange thought. But remember my question. When you encounter God, how does it change you? Let's let Romans 6 answer it, not you. My first point this morning is going to be, our encounter reminds us whose death we are in, verses 1 through 4. Look at verse 1 with me. What shall we say then Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Now, remember, he just hit in the first five chapters, you're declared righteous. So Paul's preemptively addressing a rebuttal that I would've had if I was in front of Paul. So now I gotta do what I want? Wait, wait, so it's declared, done, established for eternity? Yes, Matt, yes, okay. Does that mean I can go and sin now? Because like it's declared, it's good, I have a hall pass to now do whatever I want. Paul's already addressing in verse one, No, no, it's a preemptive rebuttal. Why? Because Paul's saying, yes, you have been covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. Yes, you are established with him for eternity. But Paul's already gonna start pushing into. But if you've really encountered Christ, it changes how you live. If you've encountered Christ, you don't live the same way. Yes, grace has covered all sins, but now it means we steward that grace in a different way in our lives going forward. Now verse two, he answers his question. By no means, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Verse two is using this fascinating language. How could you ever live in what you're dead to? What a beautiful contradictory language. Because we cannot live in what we're dead to. This phrase here, Paul's reminding the saint. He's reminding daughters of Christ. He's reminding sons of Christ here. There's a permanent stamp over your life, dead to sin. And when Paul says that we are dead to sin, he's saying because of a one-time payment on a cross, sin is no longer your master. You no longer have to bow to it. We're declared by God dead to sin, dead to our old self. Paul builds his case in verses three through four. Look there with me. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Do you see the language in those verses? Baptized into Jesus, baptized into his death, buried with him, a resurrection like his. Paul's declared the Christian dead to sin because of the work of Jesus Christ, not the work of the sinner. Paul is already calling the believer. Put your identity into the completed works of Christ. Do not put your identity into your religious stamina. Don't put it into your religious performance. Put it into the accomplished works of Jesus Christ. Why? It's only there we as Christians are safe. And here, he's already talking about the theology of regeneration. It's it's the new life that God has created in the believer. And Christ brings new life into you and to I. How? Through his literal death and his resurrection. New life happens in the person when they go from alive to sin to being alive to God. And what, is it, what does it need? It requires a death and it requires a resurrection, neither of which you have done. And Paul is using the imagery of baptism to teach us this theology of regeneration. Think of the the imagery. Christ is paralleling our new life with, with Jesus, being lowered into the water like Christ was lowered into the grave, paired with the imagery of you being raised out of the water like how Christ conquered the grave. This encounter with Christ is no small thing. The old is lowered and the new is raised. And you wanna know how an encounter with Christ is important because in verse four it says, walk in a newness of life. You notice it didn't say sit. It didn't say stagnate. It didn't say half-hearted. It means this new life has a mission to it. When we encounter Christ at salvation, When you encounter Christ daily in your life, we're sweetly reminded that our old self is dead. It's been put on Christ's death, but equally it reminds us of whose life that we are in because of the new life that Christ has. So our encounter of Christ, why is it important? Why does it matter? It's because, A, it reminds us whose death we are in. But equally, in verses 5 through 11, my second point is it reminds us whose life we are in. Look at verse 5 with me. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. When we encounter Christ, we see that there's, there's, there's a good part of us that dies, it's not the part you want to resuscitate. It's not the part that you want to save. There's a part of you and there's a part of I that needs to die. But then we equally see that there's a life that he gives the believer at the moment of salvation. That, that, that there's a life that he lived that he, now he extends to us. And in these verses, Paul is going to show the power, the reality of this regeneration. The new person exists. When we encounter Christ. Before we even start to get to walking, how do we walk this newness of life, Matt? How do we walk this out? How does a new self act? How does a new self behave? I love how Paul hasn't even gotten there yet. Do you see how much before Paul gets to instruction, he continually reminds you, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus who he is what he's done how he's offered himself to you you cannot talk about the new self without yoking it to Jesus Christ because a little bit of a hard word here you ready there is no hope of a new self apart from Jesus Christ you can only be dead Even worse, you can only be alive to sin at your best. And so Jesus Christ puts his obedience into you so that now we can walk out the very calling he's giving us. There's no no hope for you in getting away from the bondage of sin. There's no hope for you. You can only bow to the master of darkness apart from Jesus Christ in your life. I don't care how good of a person you are. I don't care about your religious stamina. I don't care what your mom or your grandparents believed. This comes down to your encounter with Jesus Christ. And so Paul keeps going, remember, remember, remember Jesus, remember Jesus, remember Jesus, remember Jesus, Jesus." why? You're in him. And you can't walk this out, A, unless you're in him. But B, you'll never walk out the fullness of the new self unless you're continually encountering Jesus Christ in your life on a daily basis. Now, verse 6 continues. We know that our old self was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, I promise you, if I give you Greek terminology, it's because it's cool. I'm not that seminary nerd, deal? When you hear Paul say, the old self, do you know what it translates from the Greek? Worn out and useless. We know that our worn out, old, useless self was put to death on a cross that a savior went on joyfully and willingly for you. And what's the result? It's found in verse six, that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Do you know how much nothing is? Nothing, nada, nil, wiped out. If you're in Christ Jesus here today, you're covered by his blood, and you keep looking back at the old self, I want you to know you've learned to live in fear of nothing. You've just deceived yourself into thinking it's something. Sometimes in our minds, we can resurrect the thing that's dead. Now, if you have little kids here, I'd suggest you pull out Angry Birds really quick because I'm gonna use a pretty morbid analogy, distract them, right? My grandmother died when I was in high school. Ask me how long, how often I go and hang out with her. I don't. Ask me how much I talk to her. I don't. Why? She's dead. When I set free from the bondage of sin and condemnation and I choose to go back to my old self, I'm hanging out with a corpse and I'm giving it mouth to mouth and I'm trying to resuscitate it. And you're like, Matt, that's pretty morbid visual. Imagine how strange that looks in the heavenlies. When I go back to the thing I've been freed from and I try to make the nothing something again, it's like I'm hanging out with a corpse and trying to resuscitate it. And the Lord's like, i freed you from. Don't resuscitate the thing that needed to die. Walk fully in the newness of life that you have. Our old ways, we couldn't help but be enslaved to sin. They had to be crucified on a cross. And the sin that we once had to worship has been brought to nothing at the cross of Jesus Christ. If you are in Christ Jesus here today, can I just encourage you, there's no wrath for you. The cup was poured out at the cross. There's not a drop left in the goblet. He fully absorbed it so that you could walk in this newness of life. Why is an encounter with Jesus Christ important? Yes, it saves us and it gives us a new name, justification. But equally, if you're not daily encountering Christ and you treat Christ as this cute little side trinket in your life, you're going to lose the power that's necessary for you to walk in the fullness and the greatness of what Jesus Christ has for you. Jesus is not an add-on to your day. He's the point. And now he goes in verses six and seven you're no longer a slave. For those of you who are stuck in your sin here, in this pattern that you just won't break, I want you to say to yourself quietly, if I'm in Christ, I am no longer a slave. That master is nothing because of the work of Jesus. I am no longer a slave. Why? It's trying to convince who you are. And the master that's nothing is trying to create something in your mind. Because Paul keeps going in his death, in his resurrection, in his, his raising of new life. The reason why Paul keeps saying this is because we can now say with confidence, I'm no longer who I once was. I'm no longer defined by what I have done. Because a death like his and a resurrection like his, I am no longer a slave, I am a son. How are you ever supposed to remind your heart of that if you're not daily in Christ? How is that narrative ever supposed to come over you, encouragement, and encourage you if you're not daily kneeling before the Lord? Now, verse 8 continues. Now, if we've died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Do you remember verse one when Christ was like, should we continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. Verse eight is readdressing that thought. Yes, every believer has a future eternity with God in heaven, yes. But at that moment of justification and regeneration and your ongoing process of sanctification, he's trying to give you a type of life you can experience now. This isn't a type of life on layaway. There is a type of life when you encounter Jesus Christ on a daily level in your personal life. There's a type of life that he is trying to give you in order for you to walk out this newness of life. A Christian that doesn't spend time with Christ daily is like a Tesla that chooses not to plug in. Can you do it? Yes. Are you stupid? Yes. Why is counting Jesus daily so critical? It reminds us whose death we are in. It reminds us whose life we are in. And it gives us a narrative and a power and an understanding to walk accordingly as the new self. Because why, Paul keeps going, if you're dead to this, how are you gonna live in it? But equally, if we're gonna walk in the life that Jesus Christ has for us, It's tethered with him. It's daily tethered with him. Now verse nine continues. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once and for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. Now remember two works of Christ that are gonna be really important. Christ did kind of two deaths on a cross. He paid for the penalty of sin by dying on the cross. And equally, he declawed the power of sin by raising from the dead. He accomplished two things when it came to dying on the cross. One, I've paid the penalty for all the sins. Two, I have come back to life to show you I have a power over death and the grave. He did two profound works at the cross all at the same time. And by the way, It was fully accomplished when he said it was finished. Why else do you think Paul keeps going, remember Jesus in his death, in his resurrection? Why? He's done it once and he's not doing it again. It's set and accomplished. And that's why Paul keeps going, put yourself in the set accomplished thing. Why? Because Matt, you waver. Matt, you miss the mark. Matt, you go down some funky paths in life. Get off of yourself and put yourself in a death like his and a resurrection like his. Why? He's not doing it again. It was established and it was done. And the Lord is going, find yourself in this secure work that Jesus has done. Do you see the goodness of the Lord even when he's talking about walking out this new self? Do you see how much Paul, arguably the greatest missionary, isn't even pointing to himself once. Paul is going his death, meaning Christ, his resurrection. And now Paul unloads in verse 11. So also you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. This word so is so critical here. Because If you don't understand verses one through 10, you can't even proceed. But if you understand verses one through 10, then Paul's now bringing in this beautiful summary. Because if you are not in Christ Jesus, I want you to know verses 11 through 14 are gonna be super discouraging. But if you understand verses one through 11, Paul goes, so, and start comes in the application. And Paul starts with things. Consider yourself two things, Matt. Consider yourself two things. One, consider yourself dead to sin. Matt, consider yourself alive to God through Christ Jesus. I could meditate on verse 11 for the rest of my life and not fully get it. Because Paul is going, Matt, you're dead to your old master all the things that you have done, all the sins that you have committed, the master you were once enslaved to, the master you were in bondage to, it's done. It's over, it's no more. I am dead to the life I once loved because of my sin. And Paul goes, consider yourself dead. But then Paul woos me to an even more beautiful imagery here, and it's this, Matt, you are alive to God in Christ Jesus. The God that I was once far from because of my sin. The God that I was disqualified from knowing because of all of my foolishness. You know that God, Matt? Yeah, because of Christ Jesus, you're now in him. You have him. He is your new master. I am alive in him. And because of Christ Jesus, it's mine. So when we encounter Christ in our lives, we're sweetly reminded whose death we are in. We're sweetly reminded whose life we are in. And my third and final point is this. It reminds us how to walk in verses 12 through 14. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Here's the first direction from Paul. Everything from Paul up to this point is a reminder now comes the direction from Paul. And it comes after being reminded who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and how he's been offered to you. This is why the Bible is not about moralism. This isn't about religious performance. This isn't about religious stamina. What God desires in your life isn't cute behavior. It's transformation by the Spirit growing into the image of his son Jesus Christ. Transformation doesn't come from trying harder or performing more. Transformation comes from your in daily encounter with Jesus Christ. Verse, you know, because of the first 11 verses, it is all contingent who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. You know why you can be encouraged here today if you feel like you're just face down against the mat of sin, of addiction, of defeat? It's because the power has already been laid in Romans chapter 6, and it has nothing to do with you. But you will never know the power of Jesus in your life until you're daily encountering him. And in verse 12, which we just read, Paul is giving us a warning. Do not give sin space in your life. What's what's the objective of sin? It's found right there in verse 12. It's to make you obey it. It's trying to get you to obey and bow down to the very master who's no longer your master. Sin's greatest desire is to experientially rob you from the very freedom that God has declared over you. Sin's trying to make you obey it. Now 13 continues, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your, inst- and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Now, when Paul is saying present here, present yourself, now we're talking about action. I want you to know every Christian on a daily moment-by-moment basis, you're presenting yourself to something. You're presenting yourself to something. You're presenting yourself to something. Every human being is in a constant state of presenting. Paul's just saying warning. And he's here he's saying, present yourself to righteousness. Righteousness surrender yourself to the lord and what are you surrendering yourself to in verse 13 it's your will your will is the biggest thing that makes you you it's your thoughts it's your affections it's your desires it's your energy and he's saying guard that will do not take that will and present it to unrighteousness Take that will and surrender it, present it to the Lord. Paul's going, from your new identity, from your new life, don't give it to sin, give it to the Lord. Why? Because sin will always take your will, that thing that drives you as a human being, and it wants to use it as a tool to now live for unrighteousness, which is the very thing you've been freed from. This is why a daily encounter with Christ is so critical. What keeps you from sin, real talk real quick, so pull out angry birds, deal? Real talk real quick. What keeps you safe from sin ultimately isn't your actions. You think an internet filter is gonna be enough to stop you from looking at porn? Not knocking on internet filters, good idea. But when you present your will to sin, you will find a way around that filter. What keeps you safe from sin isn't your performance. You could have the greatest curfew between you and your boyfriend so that you do not sleep together. Am I knocking on curfews? Not at all, there's wisdom in it. But unless you're surrendering to Christ, you're gonna take that will and surrender it to something else. And that's why you can blow past the filters all the time on your computer. That's why with the greatest accountability, you can still sleep with your girlfriend or boyfriend. You can try to be a greater spouse. But if you're going on your energy and your abilities and all these different types of things, it's gonna fall short. The thing that keeps us safe from sin is proximity to Jesus. What keeps us safe from sin is encountering Him. Why? It's like a scale. Matt's love for sin and Matt's love for Jesus, they don't go up together and they don't go down together. One lowers as one raises. I cannot be intimate and loving Christ and embracing my sin so close. If I'm encountering Christ daily, my sin should be lowering equally how many times in the counseling room do i walk with people that are like Matt? i've gone down a path you would never believe i did and i don't really care about the what i'm like that's fascinating let's go back a few months what's your relationship with god nada interesting encountering jesus lowered your love for your sin raised do you see that They both don't go up and they both don't go down. One lowers and one raises. Why? I cannot hold tightly to the feet of Jesus and hold tightly to my sin all at the exact same time. But God gives us this deep joy, this deep reminder. You are in him. Why? So when the old, worn out, useless, dead, powerless defeated master whispers to me because he does i can from intimacy with jesus tell it to shut up we're coming up on christmas season right i love christmas movies anybody seen home alone number one right okay good everyone's like amen All right, so Home Alone chapter number one, right? Now, number two is good. Anything else beyond that's garbage, right? So save your time. Home Alone chapter one, Kevin's left home alone. Do you know, like, whenever he goes in the basement, what's he afraid of? The furnace, right? Somehow in his imagination, he comes to life, Kevin. And he's like, oh, snap, and he just runs upstairs. The entire movie, the furnace has Kevin running. And at the very end of the movie, The same furnace doing the same trick kicks on. Do you remember this? Kevin. And what does Kevin say? Shut up. And what does the furnace do? And it closes. What if we could learn from Kevin McAllister on a very ungodly movie but have the same thing? Why? The very thing that made Kevin run the entire time stopped making him run. Why the furnace didn't change his perspective of the furnace changed. What if we could apply that same truth to our old dead self? So when the furnace of Matt's old self, Matt, remember all the things you've done. Matt, remember this. Matt, you have to give in. Matt, there's no hope. Instead of running my entire life from the furnace of the old dead, useless, worn out self, what if I, from my daily encounters with Christ, could just simply tell it to shut up? Do you see the power of Christ in your life? What's been making you run your entire life? What's the skeleton in your closet that stopped you from going to the Lord? What's the thing that's ever stopped you from daring into the waters of of greater intimacy with Jesus Christ? What's the thing that's been snagging you so that when I talk about this newness of life, you have no ability to relate to it? I want you here today to learn the ism. Shut up. It's Hebrew, so I can't get in trouble. And I'm looking at some of my elders and I don't think I'm fired yet, so I'm okay. Why, why can we tell it to shut up? Because of a death like his and a resurrection like his. If I tell it to shut up by my ability, my strength and my performance, it doesn't respect me and it doesn't fear me. It knows how to enslave me. But when I learn to battle the old self that's already dead and brought to nothing, And it's it's trying to woo me back, or at the very least, make me live in a lifestyle of shame and guilt and defeat that I can't even get up in the newness of life. What if we could, through our encounter with Jesus Christ daily, our time in the Word, our time with prayer, our time with other saints, what if the very thing that snagged us the entire life, we could tell it to shut up and we wouldn't even use our own words. We would use the words of Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. You know what I call that? I call that a free Christian. You know what I call that? I I call that a Christian walking in the new self. And the confidence, all of it comes from, like Paul said in the first 11 verses a death like his and a resurrection like his. Verse 14 continues For sin will have no dominion over you. You are not under the law, but under grace. Paul again reminds us, you were once enslaved, you were once had, the old master had dominion over you, but it no longer dominates you, it cannot. He's reminding the audience, you're not under the law of, sorry, you're not under the law, you're under grace. Paul's really going back to chapter 3. Why? When Paul says in chapter 3, verse 20, the point of the law is to show us our sin. If you and I look into this law, all we're going to see is how we've fallen short, how you don't have it together, how you're not amazing. And Paul is going from this awareness of sin, you're under the law of grace. You know, the one who kept the law perfectly, you know, the one who didn't abolish it, but fully fulfilled it and then offered his obedience and his perfection to you. This is why Paul keeps reminding us about Jesus Christ. This chapter has far more to do with Jesus Christ than it does you. He's going, remember, you're not under the law. Why? I'll look to the law and all I'll see is all my laundry list of sins. And God goes, don't worry. One has fulfilled the law. He's given you his perfection and you're now under a law of grace. Remember the one who lived perfectly. Remember the one who paid the penalty for sin. Remember the one who overcame death. And from his works, remember that you were given a new name and a new identity. And Paul is just continually bringing us back to one point. In Jesus, because of Jesus, Through Jesus. This is why an encounter with Jesus is never wasted and it's never powerless in your life. If you want a summary of Romans 6, through like verses 1 through 14, do you know what an encounter with Jesus does? An encounter with Jesus means we have died to an old master. An encounter with Jesus means that we get to walk in a newness of life. An encounter with Jesus reminds us that our old self has been brought to Nothing. An encounter with Jesus reminds us you're no longer enslaved to sin. An encounter with Jesus reminds us we no longer have to obey our old ways. An encounter with Jesus means we get to experience the new life that God has offered us because he's reconciled us to the Father through his sacrifice. An encounter with Jesus protects us from bowing down to an old master. An encounter with Jesus means that we daily get to take our will and give it to the one who gives it greater life and wants to use it as a tool for righteousness in your life and in the life of others. As the worship team comes back up, I wanna go back to my question I asked you in the intro. I end by proposing my question When you encounter God, how does it change you? How you conclude this question will determine if you truly even treasure spending time with him. We see in Romans chapter six the power of encountering Jesus at salvation and we're justified and declared righteous before God. We see the power of of encountering Jesus in sanctification. It's both a protection from going back to the old self, and it's the very fuel that we walk in the new self with. How have your encounters been? You can't grow in the image of the one you're not encountering. How has your encounters been in your marriage? If your marriage was evangelism and an outside world could look in, is Christ even desirable the way you conduct yourself? You want a new life within your marriage from the new self? It requires two spouses to bend a knee, not one, two, and to surrender their marriage and their will before the Lord. How's your encounters in your parenting? The greatest Christ that they're going to see for a long time is you, dad, and you, mom. Are you ushering your kids to your control and your anger? Are you having this sweet discipleship opportunity to take the time with your kids and encounter Christ with them? Not separate, with them. Singles. I hate how the church often talks about you, like you're in purgatory until you meet the one. Paul talks about singleness in such a high regard that it's something beautiful to steward. Are you stewarding your singleness? How are you encountering Christ in that? One last question. Have you ever encountered Jesus? If you're here today and you have not called on the name of Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, if you have not submitted your will to him, this is your first encounter. And if it's a good encounter, which it is, imagine the power of all the encounters going forward. So whether you don't know him, encounter him. If you know him, encounter him. There's never a time in the believer's life where it's not urged, abide in him, encounter him. Now, I want to lead us in 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 a type of prayer, so let's pray. Think about the thing that has just been ensnaring you. That thing that just keeps snagging you. Maybe it's that thing from a decade ago. Maybe it's the thing from yesterday. It's that thing that is stopping you from experiencing the joy and the power of the new self. And even in this moment, as as you're seeing it, as you're thinking about it, if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, say to yourself, it doesn't own me. Say to yourself, it was paid at the cross of Jesus Christ. Say to yourself, You have no dominion over me. You are not my master. Jesus is my new master. And his yoke is beautiful and his yoke is light. With him, there's a newness of life. Whatever this thing is that you're thinking about and you're envisioning, and it just feels like a bear trap that's got your leg spiritually for years, hand it over to the throne of Jesus as you're going to the throne of Jesus. Remind yourself it doesn't have you, Jesus does. It doesn't define you. I have a new name. I have a new identity. And as I'm releasing it, I'm getting up and I'm walking in the newness of life because of a death like his and a resurrection like his. And as he meets me, So God, I stop and I pray in this moment. I can't imagine the things these people are thinking about. I cannot imagine the things that people are are envisioning right now. How hard, how heavy, how ensnaring, how binding it must feel. But I thank you, Jesus, because of a death like yours, and a resurrection like yours. It's an old, worn out, useless, powerless thing that has been brought to nothing. And we get a walk with you, the Savior who covered it all by the blood of Christ. And it's paid for, as I'm covered by the blood of Christ and precious in your eyes. And so, God, we're about to worship. And, Lord, Remind our hearts, even in this moment, let us worship as free sons. Let us worship as free daughters. Let us, let us worship as those who have been brought from a master of darkness to a master of light. Let us, let us worship as those who only knew bondage, who only knew addictions, and who only knew to bow to the thing that failed them. And now we bow to the very thing that brings us life. And even here and even now, right now, we stand and we worship and bow to the very one who gives us life and life abundant. We love you, Father. Thank you in Christ's name.